There's a term we keep circling in this series. It keeps coming up in different places and in different contexts. The term is vision, artistic vision, creative vision, aesthetic vision. Today, we are going to approach it directly. What are you trying to do with your work as a magician? Where are you trying to go? What are you trying to bring to life with your work? Or if that's too mystical for you, what do you want to build? The great Paul Harris said it best, the tricks are just tools. And to build something great, of course you need good tools. But the real question, the harder question, is what are you trying to make with them? And if you don't know, if you haven't found your creative direction as a magician yet, no problem. But then, how do you find it? And just as urgently, how do you connect that ideal with the work you're doing for an audience? There's a useful parallel here between the world of magic and the world of architecture. The architect and the magician are in a similar place creatively in that each is trying to create something good, something that embodies the architect's or the magician's sense of what their art could be. But ultimately, you're building something that is going to be lived in by someone else. Magic only ever exists in the internal experience of the spectator. All a magician ever does is create a moment in someone else's life. And while it's true that an architect is building a physical structure, the people who live there will not experience that house as an impersonal array of wood and steel and concrete, but as a home. The building will succeed or fail in its function to the people who live there as a home. So, this week, creative vision, architecture, Frank Lloyd Wright, you're listening to Everything But The Flame. My name is Nate Staniforth. Welcome to episode four. So then I started to be interested in these things that mystified people. There it is. That's the magic part. A classical trick of magic. And I knew right then and there that I was being called to be a magician. Thank you very much once again, everybody, for viewing in. A few years ago, I was in Chicago, just outside of Chicago, in the suburb of Oak Park which is famous as the home of Frank Lloyd Wright, who is one of the most influential architects this country has ever had. And when you're in Oak Park, you can visit a number of homes and buildings he designed. Th throughout his career, he designed buildings all over the world, but continued to fulfill commissions closer to home as well. So there's a nice collection of Frank Lloyd Wright masterpieces all within walking distance. I've been fascinated by Wright since I was a teenager and saw the Ken Burns documentary about him. Highly recommended, by the way. But, but so when I was in Oak Park, I signed up for this walking tour of Frank Lloyd Wright buildings where you could see his studio and his home that he designed and a church he designed and a few others as well. And while I was there walking through all of these buildings, I noticed something. I noticed that when you enter a Frank Lloyd Wright building, you never enter into a large space. You always enter into a small, confined entryway. And this entryway does not lead you directly into the heart of the house or the studio or the church. Instead, it leads you to a hallway or a small room with low ceilings, like the building is taking you in from the world and embracing you. 
And it's only after you've passed through the entryway and turned a couple of corners that the house opens and the height of the ceiling explodes up and the scale of the rooms open wide and it feels very much like you have arrived someplace wonderful. But the progression was always small, 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 big. He did this in the house and in the studio and in the church and I realized this is not an accident. This is not a coincidence. He's doing this deliberately. What is going on here? And the answer is that he wasn't just designing a building, but also my experience in the building. He wanted me to take those 90 degree turns to move from the outside world to the inside world of his building. And, and this was just one of many examples. He often placed the windows high on the walls so you'd look not onto your neighbor's yard or onto the busy street in front of your house, but to the sky, which filled your rooms with natural light while preserving the feeling that when you were within the building, you were in your own private world. In so many ways, he did this again and again and again, little details that shaped my experience in his building and made them feel special. If you were to visit one of these buildings, you'd maybe get a sense of his style or the techniques he employed. But going from one building to the next, one after another, you could begin to get a sense of his vision. Not just his work as it was, but his work as he wanted it to be. The ideal toward which each of these buildings was aimed. And the ideal was more than just style. It was more than just a repeating color pattern or a particular arrangement of rooms. There was a harmony between form and function, a union between his artistic sensibilities and the experience of those who would inhabit the spaces he was creating. It felt like he had pulled these buildings from his imagination, to be sure, but it also felt like he had done it for me and for everyone else inside. I'm getting ahead of myself. This is not an episode about Frank Lloyd Wright's creative vision, but about yours. How do you find your direction as a magician? I can't teach you how to be creative, but I don't have to. Everyone has their own perspective, their own point of view, their own way of seeing the world. And finding your creative vision is not a process of inventing something, but of discovering something, of uncovering something you already have. And while no one can do this for you, here are a few ideas that might be useful. That's what we're going to talk about for the rest of this episode. A few ideas that might be useful for you to help you find your creative vision. First, try this as an exercise. What do you dislike in magic? Why do you dislike it? I've been learning about Frank Lloyd Wright's career and how crucial the Chicago World's Fair in 1893 was for his sense of creative vision as a young architect. Because he saw all of these white marble recreations of classical Greek and Roman architecture they were building for the World's Fair. And he hated them. He didn't want to continually recreate the forms and ideals of a long-gone civilization on the other side of the world. He wanted a kind of architecture that would fit his time and his place and his culture. And in time, he'd do it. He got there. But it began as a reaction against the types of buildings he didn't like. You see this in magic, too. Sam Sharp, of neo-magic artistry fame, 
is one of my favorite writers in magic. And, and he wrote about how disappointed he was as a young boy by all of the magicians he saw, that, that all of them promised marvels and then only performed tricks, but that by paying attention to this disappointment, he was able to discover what he wished those magicians had been, which helped him discover the direction in magic that he wanted to go. So again, what don't you like? Why don't you like it? What about it feels ridiculous or disappointing or dull? By looking clearly at what you don't like, you can, by moving against it, away from it, start exploring the creative territory that might feel more promising. Next, start looking for great work that resonates with you. There's a quote from the novelist Jack London that I keep on my desk sometimes. He said, quote, you can't wait for inspiration. You have to go after it with a club. So another way to identify the creative direction you want to go is to read as many good books and listen to as much good music and watch as many good films as you can. Watch YouTube videos by the people doing great work on YouTube. Go to great shows, comedy, dance, theater. Take it all in. You are on the hunt, actively, deliberately, looking for the stuff that grabs your imagination. Learning magic tricks often doesn't require a great deal of imagination, but doing something original with them does. So the idea here is to fuel your imagination and drive it forward with a steady, constant exposure to great work. Find the work that moves you and let it move you. Get a library card and a Spotify subscription and sit and read and listen. Doing this for a day will change your entire week. Making it a part of every day will change your entire life. You're not looking for entertainment, edification, sophistication, or knowledge. You're trying to find the stuff that makes the hair stand up on the back of your neck. You're trying to have your mind blown over and over as often as possible. So you're not waiting for inspiration. You're finding the stuff that inspires you by going out and searching for it. Let's jump ahead here for just a moment so you can see where I'm going with this. If identifying the aspects of magic you don't like and moving away from them is one way to get a sense of your creative taste, so is diving deep into the other arts and finding the work that you do like, that you love, that resonate on a deep and powerful level with you and your sense of what is good and what matters to you in the world. You're trying to find traces of the same magic you hope to create in the minds of your audience. Because when you then go to do your own work, you'll have all of these reference points guiding you away from the work that everyone else is doing and off into a direction that's more interesting to you and more truthful to your perspective. Finally, imagine that you're sitting in a theater or if you primarily do close-up magic, imagine that you're sitting in a restaurant with some friends and a magician walks over to you. Except this magician doesn't do what every other restaurant magician does. Instead, he or she walks up to your group and then what? What happens next? Put yourself in the position of the audience and then watch in your imagination as a spectator your ideal performance from a magician. What happens? What do you want to happen? 
What could that magician do that would make you feel about magic the way you'd like your audience to feel about magic? The goal here, like the architect designing a house that unifies his or her artistic vision with an awareness of the day-to-day lives of the people who will live there, The goal is to root your vision in the experience of those people who will be watching you. You're trying to get a sense of how it would feel to be in your own audience. Seeing yourself as a performer, seeing the magic that you're sharing with the audience. You're not so much worried about the specifics as the essence. You're trying to grasp the soul of the thing. What is the audience getting from you? And is it in line with what you're trying to give? It's easy to invent a mission statement as a performer that that never once has any relationship to the work you're actually doing on stage. I think we've all seen magicians who use the concept of wonder as a kind of drapery to enhance what is otherwise a pretty standard magic show, which is why trying to see your ideal performance from the perspective of the audience is so important. If you want your magic to evoke a sense of wonder, great, that's great. But then place yourself in one of the theater seats and spend some time thinking about what you could see on stage that might lead to that response from the audience. And one last thing. This isn't just something to do once at the beginning of your career. Every time I do a show, just before they open the doors for the audience to arrive, I sit in a seat in the theater and try to remember why I'm there, what I'm there to do from that perspective. Because a painter can make a painting and hang it on the wall, and there it is, a painting. Even if no one else ever sees it, the painter has seen it. It exists for the painter. But a magician is creating something that he or she never sees, because we know the secret, of course. And it's different when you know the secret. You see the trick, but not the magic. Just like an architect sees the house, but not the home. And so the vision has to include the audience. They are the ones who will ultimately make it real. It takes time to find a direction in magic that feels like your own. That's the last thing I want to say. It's okay for it to take a while. Everyone starts out by imitating the other artists in their field. Bands play covers, writers imitate styles and forms of their favorite writers, and magicians emulate Copperfield or Blaine or Darren Brown or Penn and Teller or whoever it was that first captured their imagination with some great performance and made them want to become a magician. It's okay. That's part of the process. But the next part of the process, the next step forward, is finding your own voice and finding your own direction in magic, making an expression of your imagination and your way of seeing the world. And I hope very much that this has been useful to you in that effort. After the episode last week, I received this question from a magician named Greg in California. Hey Nate, this is Greg out in Upland, California. I just heard your latest episode of the podcast and you were talking about Shakespeare's ability to entertain and sort of play to the crowd and still find moments and ways to go deeper. And I think that's a really difficult line to walk. Uh, It reminds me of growing up in my very sheltered Christian home and going to Christian rock concerts. A lot of times at these shows, the band would play for like 45 minutes 
And then they would bring out a pastor who would give like a 20 minute sermon or longer. And then the band would come out and play their hits. And uh, I always hated it. And it could be the best sermon I've ever heard. But right now, that is not what I came for. (laughs) And uh, so I think it's a difficult line to walk. And uh, I'm curious to know how to approach that and maybe how you walk that line. Greg, thanks very much for sending this in. I've been mulling over your question for the past couple of days because I I see a distinction between the kind of event you're describing and the point I was trying to make in the last episode, but it's taken me a little while to identify where that distinction is exactly, but I think I've found it. The idea, at least for me, is, is to not have a separation between the, quote, real elements of a show and the, quote, entertaining elements of the show. It's all the same thing. It's all wrapped up together in the same experience. And the point I was trying to make in the last episode was that in a Shakespeare play, the real human resonant elements of his show came through the work, through the show, through the same tapestry of words and characters and plot elements that created the rest of the piece. So it's not a matter of creating the work over here and the meaning or the message over there and trying to get the audience to see both of them. It's that the work is the meaning. It's all the same thing. The purpose of the show is the realization of the artist's creative vision. Let me give you an example in magic. The distinction I'm trying to make is the difference between a magician talking a lot about wonder during a magic show and simply finding a way to perform magic in a way that feels wondrous. You're giving the audience direct access to the thing. You're not finding an outside meaning and bolting it onto a magic show. You're finding a way of thinking about magic that's true for you and bringing that to life with your show for your audience. Greg, thank you again for your question. If you've been listening to this episode and you have a question about something I've covered today or or have something you'd like to add, I'd love to hear it. Please DM me on Instagram. I'm at Nate Staniforth, N-A-T-E-S-T-A-N-I-F-O-R-T-H on Instagram, and I'll do my best to include it in a future episode. Okay, thanks for listening, everyone. More from me next week.